Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, uh, and welcome to another Confucius Institute for Business London public lecture. Um, I think it's the third one we've had so far this term, and it's one that actually I've been particularly looking forward to hearing. I was actually going to be having a relaxing time in the audience, and Professor Danny Quart sends his apologies. He was going to be the chair for tonight's lecture. Um, fortunately, for personal reasons, he's not able to, to make it. So um, I've stepped in. I'm Nick Byrne. I'm the um, UK director of the Confucius Institute for Business London, and I'm also the director of the LSE Language Centre. So my business very much is, is languages. Um, we are extremely lucky and very privileged to have Stephen Perry with us tonight. Um, I've met Stephen Perry a few times before, admired him from before, but, uh, afar, but also particularly admired what he's done. Um, it has on the screen behind me Chairman 48 Group Club, which sounds sort of part Playboy Mansion and part Cold War. I don't know, there's something, I can't quite get my mind around that. But um, it, it is actually, and I, I know that Stephen's going to explain this, um, it's one of the key organisations um, that were set up um, in the late 40s and 50s to really bring worlds together, bring people together, bring ideas together, and people together that weren't really happy with having mental walls and sometimes real walls um, going between people and ideas. Um, there's a great story in Stephen's life, probably a great film as well, or at least a six-part Channel 4 documentary, I feel. Um, but there are images and, and stories. If you, if you do your Google trip, there's some amazing stories in it between himself, China, his father, um, people, places, faces that, that I've seen as I was growing up. And there are some really, really interesting stories to be told. And I think that's very, very important, that although we're all fascinated by China today, the business, how to do business with China, the politics, the money, will they rescue Europe or not? Will there be a Europe to rescue? And is Berlusconi still there in power or not? Who can tell? I have, my, I have a Berlusconi alarm on my watch, by the way. So um, if he resigns, I'll let you know at the end of the evening. But um, there is far more to that. There's a whole physical, spiritual, mental collection, connection with China. And I think what we're very lucky with Stephen today, he's going to be giving really strong facts and figures and ideas about how we should be doing business with China and what we should be doing. But what you've got with Stephen is all this information and hardcore facts really filtered through a tremendous connection, a personal and spiritual connection with the country, and, and I think actually a connection that has a lot of affection and a lot of love for there. So I think this personal idea is something very, very special, and I'm very, very glad that we're going to share it tonight. A few facts and figures. Um, I think that we have someone with us who is a UCL person through and through, um, and I know that we forgive him for this. There's nothing wrong whatsoever with that. Um, he is chair of the London Export Corporation Limited, which again has a long history um, in, in dealing with China, and one again that we should um, uh, be interested to hear. Background as a lawyer, 
But I think as well, actually, your background is an adventurer. Um, I think that you are an inspiration and could be to people who, I think, students, graduates, that need to be more adventurous, that want to actually take routes that are not direct. And I think having people like you, huge success stories, talk at uh, events like these are very, very important because you show that sometimes the most interesting journeys in life are the most surprising, the most complicated. So I know you're going to give us a talk, a lecture first, and then we're going to go up into a bit of Q&A and questions from the uh, floor. But in the meantime, a very, very warm welcome to Stephen Perry. Uh, thank you very much indeed, Nick. First, um, ladies and gentlemen, a health warning. I was told to, that this was a serious event and uh, that I should give a fairly long speech. So any of you who might want to go for a break, uh, do it now because I'm going to be talking for about 40 minutes, something like that. So please do that. And can I say how nice it is to be here at the LSE? Um, it's not the last time that I was here, but almost the last time I was here was about oh, 40, uh, 43 years ago. Sad, isn't that? I think we were occupying the LSE, and um, I probably had more fun that day than I did. Um, that, no, no, I'm sure I'll have a lot of fun tonight, but it was a lot of fun then. The LSE um, ranks right up there, doesn't it, in international academic institutions, and the place where the debates should rage. And, Hopefully, I'll step on a few toes and um, raise some issues today that, that are interesting and useful for everybody uh, on the subject of China. Um, I may have to resort to putting my glasses on. Uh, I thought, first of all, I'd give you a short history of the 48 Group and London Export. Um, if, if you get bored, just, just fall asleep, don't worry at all. But I'll, I'll try and keep it as interesting as I can as I go along. Um, but I'll give you that background. Uh, then I'm going to talk a lot about my views about China and where China's going and where that uh, puts us with business. But first of all, the 48 Group. And you go back into the 40s, the post-war period, the beginning of the Cold War. And my dad, and that's really why I'm here, because of my dad, uh, my dad um, had come out of the east end of London. He was one of those who was at Cable Street uh, when they turned back the, um, the fascists then. And um, after the Second World War, and you know, it's not so much part of uh, our history as we're taught it here, that the Soviet Union lost more people in the Second World War than almost anybody else. So the attachment of those who helped resist um, fascism had a, a strong relationship with the Soviet Union as being a key part of that alliance that defeated the fascists. And um, so my father had that strong feeling. He, he, he knew a lot of other people in that, in that arena. And uh, when the Cold War started uh, to come on, three very significant professors in Cambridge, um, one was uh, called um, Joseph Needham, who wrote The Science and Civilization of China, brilliant academic. Um, I don't I'm going to recommend to you to read all 24 of the volumes that he wrote about the science and civilization of China. But if you want to hear about a man who knows his China, it was Joseph Needham, uh, who taught himself Chinese and was considered the greatest scholar since Erasmus in his work on China. Uh, the other two were Professor Joan Robinson and Geoffrey Kahn. And these were two world-renowned economist professors who were the main resources for um, 
uh, Keynes in, in what he wrote and became very important. So these three profound professors uh, invited my father to dinner and, uh, gosh, that was a, a step for him, a guy from the East End of London who left school when he was 14. He was pretty bright, though, and pretty articulate, but he went for dinner, and at that dinner he met um, a very articulate Chinese who'd spent most of his life um, in America, actually, on Wall Street, but had gone back to um, help the um, communist uh, victory um, in 1949 and stayed on and become a member of the uh, Joe and Lai's personal staff. He'd come out to try and help rebuild China's foreign trade and they all talked to my father about the oncoming Cold War and the importance of building trade links. Uh, and you kind of go forward from there, there was eventually a conference called in Moscow in 1952, almost 60 years ago now in April, when a number of countries got together all under the banners of the Council's promotion of international trade to try and maintain trade links against the um, oncoming uh, Cold War. And there again, my father met the Chinese delegation. That's a nice little aside. At the end of it, they were so impressed by him, they invited him to go to Beijing. My mother was pregnant with my younger brother. Um, and uh, he said he couldn't, he had to go home. And they said, was there anybody else you could get to come? And the whole British delegation had other things to do. They had to get back and eventually went around. Eventually he found uh, two Canadians who would take, pick up the tickets and go to Beijing. One of them was Pierre Trudeau. <laughs> Interesting little anecdote. But anyway, uh, so the Moscow Economic Conference um, happened. He came back, told my mother he was going to stop his business and start trade with uh, uh, the East and with China. And they started London Export Corporation in July 52. They signed the first trade agreement with China. A year later, he took uh, 18 business people to Beijing in what became known as the Icebreaker Mission. The next year, the British Council for International Promotion of International Trade created the 48 Group, which uh, then went on for the next many years, um, organizing trade missions to and from China and building trade with China. I became chairman after merging with the government organization to form the China-Britain Business Council, of which I'm founding vice chairman. The 48 Group Club was formed, which was, uh, had a wider brief for promoting positive relations with China, and I became chairman of that in, just after um, our wonderful governor, Chris Patton, decided to uh, take on China. I thought it was about time I um, took on a more public role, and boy, that was an interesting period. But that's another story we'll come to some other time. Um, and uh, so we have the 48 Group Club born at that time, about 92, 93, and that's what I'm chairman of. The company that I'm chairman of, London Export Corporation Limited, was founded by my father back in 52, well, actually 51. Uh, the first, I, I worked part-time for many years, um, and uh, my first full-time work after being president of UCL, that great institution in London, um, after being at uh, UCL, I went on to join my father full-time. I was sent immediately to America to put together with others the first deals between China and America. Um, that was my first uh, real big business deal, selling cotton, polyester, and uh, chemicals to China from the United States in 1971 to... Um, we were big commodity traders, so I have a long background in commodity trading. Uh, we had consumer goods distribution companies uh, in, in Europe, which I ran, and um, I did put together the first trade for technology deals with China. Sounds like I'm trying to promote myself here, doesn't it? Um, and um, then uh, the first um, domestic joint venture ever in China uh, was something that um, I organized and created. I organized the development of porcelain from China to the United States dinnerware market, uh, helped the state of Missouri 
open up trade links and air routes with China in more recent times and some recent deals in Africa. Why am I saying that? It's not because I'm particularly impressed by myself, but it gives you some idea of, of, of who I am and what I do. Um, so against this background, and I read a bit more here now than just speak uh, openly, so I hope up there you don't think I'm ignoring you because I'm looking down. I'm watching you to make sure you don't fall asleep. But anyway, against this background, what do I think are the challenges and opportunities of trade and investment with China? What follows is my personal opinion and not that of the 48 Group Club or London Export Corporation. I want to approach this, and I hope it's coming across clear. Yeah. I want to approach this by examining the motivating factors in Chinese policy, the main forms of economic development they have, are, and will undertake, the implications for foreign trade, the implications for doing business with China. For me, everything about China is politics first. So understand the politics, the policy, then you can get the implementation afterwards. I will suggest in conclusion that China, the market, is a competitive, transitional market made easy only for those bringing what China is deficient in. The companies that do well are those who offer and can provide what the Chinese need, can buy effectively from China, or can offer the Chinese a way to access what they need on the world stage. The Chinese are unusual in the world as they have a tight hold on the forms and styles of demand. Sometimes this is misunderstood as reactionary central planning or just straight conservatism. It's not. China is very open to the modern world and change, but China is also very careful to use its resources for what it needs as its priorities. One company with whom I've been associated have been able to help China access production of agricultural products in Africa. This has created benefits to its knowledge and relationship in China. Most importantly, perhaps, it's enabled this company to see the future trend of China in Africa and see how the future structure of this industry will change over the next 10 to 15 years. Engagement with China has a variety of different meanings. China is a nervous yet bold country. They know they have a long, long way to go and they have huge challenges, but they will go on along the course they have set for themselves. China is quite focused and well-researched and planned, spends its money fairly carefully. On the other side, we have a Western effort which is fragmented and diffuse, lacking in coherence, it seems to me, and in its relations with China, really dominated by the Chinese demand and the Chinese supply. By this I mean, again, those companies that are doing well in China are basically those that are operating in areas the Chinese want them to be in. Examples of this are Boeing, Airbus, Rolls-Royce, Tesco's. There are many areas and companies operating successfully in China in areas where the Chinese still have need. Doing business with China successfully depends upon identifying Chinese policy, its future trends, and finding ways to work with that. So first, I suggest, we need to understand the core drivers of Chinese policy. The two that I focus on are my choice and arise from my experience. I could find references, but I'm not an academic. These are just my starting points. The first one is population. The Chinese have been developing their country and economy in a systematic way 
in the first 30 years. They secured their borders, created stability, developed a nation state, and built the basic structure of the nation. And this was despite upheavals, mistakes, and setbacks. Mao encouraged, as a part of their policies, to increase China's population to stay the largest in the world that could build a new agricultural base that could feed their people based on manual labor and relatively minor amounts of mechanization. He also felt that the Korean War showed him the intent of the West to invade China and eliminate communism. So he decided to build the largest army in the world. In those days, that was basically about guerrilla war and was about sheer numbers. These were the reasons why China has a population by 1978 three times the size they could cope with and required them to introduce the one-child policy at 1.2 billion, they were badly overstretched. At 1.6 billion, they would, have, they would have cracked. It was soon clear that the main driver of Chinese policies after 1978 was this huge population demanding resources China did not have. The incoming government led by Deng knew they had to move fast to clothe, feed and house, educate and take care of this huge population. As we now know, millions were living in serious poverty and that could only get worse. There was no choice of politics. The Chinese appear to me to have socialism and Marxism as their guiding philosophy. This move was about sheer necessity either sought the needs of, of the population or China would go out of control. Driven by starvation born out of diminishing arable land and a population increasing annually by millions, there would be no socialism. No China without first dealing, without meeting these basic needs of a huge population that could not be achieved without using many forms of capitalist ways of developing. But the aim was, in my opinion, and remains, a socialist China. As part of this, they need to mechanize agriculture to have any chance of feeding this huge population properly. To do this, they would have to move 900 million people over 50 years from the countryside, from largely poverty, to new cities and towns, the most phenomenal and untested challenge. Everything China was to do was new and untested. Everything China will, new, will do will be new and untested. Some would say it could only be done by a determined and single-minded state. The needs of the population of China was to change everything, everything inside China and far beyond. The second and crucial propellant of Chinese policy is the 150 years of, of shame. China feels that it was attacked, occupied, and economically destroyed by the foreigners, mainly Europeans, and most closely associated with the words the Opium Wars. China has long practiced self-reliance as a policy based on fear of the foreigners overpowering China. This core sense of maintaining Chinese independence Constantly minimizing foreign dependence is a core policy which, in my opinion, has not changed. Only its interpretation has changed as China has become dependent in different ways on outside fulfillment of needs such as energy, raw materials, and technology. 
You can see how China absorbed huge amounts of foreign capital, but it was temporary. But the force at the core is to protect Chinese independence as much as possible. China has set its bar at quite a high level. By that, I mean inadequate <coughs> local capabilities will not be tolerated. The aim is to create locally global capability, and that can take the time it needs to take, but the aim remains constant to maintain and develop self-reliance as far as possible. Strategically and historically, Asia is China's world, and there are major features stretching back over centuries which bind and are common to Asian cultures. Sometimes this thought is related to Confucianism, Buddhism, the Middle Kingdom, and many other incomplete analyses, in my opinion. The core is China is an independent nation which is a part of Asia and interacts with the world, especially those it identifies with, the developing world. So the two drivers, the needs of a huge population and a sense of China being focused on China as a part of Asia, interacting with the outside world to obtain resources and trade its products in return. But the China Joseph Needham saw through his study of 2,000 years of Chinese history is basically a China absorbed by the needs and challenges of China. I don't think that's changed. So now let's examine the Chinese development model in simple terms and its impact on foreign trade. China, after the fall of the Gang of Four, needed to move and move fast to secure the basic needs of its huge population. Deng, Chen Yun, and the other immortals as China remaining, China's remaining veteran leaders were known, had to move fast to solve the huge problems of this large and increasing population. Deng led a return to the past. In 1964, when the then Premier Zhou Enlai, President Liu Xiaoqi, Chen Yun, and Deng Xiaoping planned the original, initial or original four modernizations Deng used this original work in 1978. In 1964, it may have sparked Mao's resentment of the overly, overly material priority of that set of policy plans, which may well have sparked the Cultural Revolution. But this became, in 1978, the new four modernizations, opening up and reform. This led to the special economic zones and a China which changed direction radically. This opening and reforming of China led to a two-stage approach. Stage one, export-led and utilizing Western capital, technology, management methods, and above all else, Western markets. The first steps were to work with the Chinese diaspora, but the goal was Western technology, capital, and markets. Stage two, moving to a more self-reliant economy based within Asia and with Asia and other developing economies. The first stage export model was tested throughout the 1980s, impacted by Tiananmen Square and ultimately resolved by the steps taken by Premier Zhu Rongji to break the situation where nearly all companies were totally owned and controlled by the state. Also, a few years earlier, foreigners were allowed partial access to the Chinese domestic market. And lastly, the last major change was joining WTO. 
the control of the means of production, the socialist concept, was merged in this period with a market mechanisms economy into a concept of socialism with Chinese characteristics. This meant that the core companies of the economy would be led by the party, but would need to transform into globally competitive companies with completely new agendas. Part of this process was the IPOs of the major banks and Chinese companies, which many in the Western financial sectors believed, wrongly in my opinion, to be the start of Western-style financial capitalism. This is wrong. In my opinion, the Chinese used stock exchanges for the purpose we set them up for 200 years ago. They were to, to recycle capital into companies, to enable dividends to be paid publicly and develop a public scrutiny in exchange which would enable them to become global competitors. This is the primary role of Chinese stock markets, not to provide launch pads for takeover, mergers and acquisitions by corporations and private equity or hedge funds. Probably these state-owned enterprises, in my opinion, will be ultimately owned by China's welfare and insurance funds, creating the world's first fully funded welfare state, albeit that it will only be allowed to grow to about 25% of the size of the Western welfare states, thus avoiding the threat to the nation-state that our welfare states have become to our state the role of the state was to take China into the modern world, to take its people out of poverty and into a place of a medium-sized economy with modest per capita income, but a size which would mean China would become the world's largest economy in just 40 years. This new form of the Chinese economy, tested and trialled extensively, brought on huge benefits to China, reflected in the new cities, the skyscrapers, the teeming middle class, the huge numbers removed from the countryside and poverty. It also brought with it less attractive features. Another feature of this policy was the accumulation of huge dollar reserves which would ultimately restrain, albeit temporarily, the aggression of the United States when they realized just how big China had become. And you'll remember the exchanges between Madame Wu Yi and Paulson over the currency. Managing the relationship with the USA was, is, and will be for many years the number one priority of Chinese foreign policy. I do not want to stop long here, but the reason for building the reserves was to help manage the USA by holding a large amount of US government debt as a signal of Chinese support and power if and when it should view China as a threat. And then to purchase raw materials, oil wells and mines to buy brands, and build the infrastructure of Chinese exports to yield the highest returns. Income is an aspect of their use, but not the core objective. Using WTO to build exports was critical, but so was another feature that the Chinese leadership had understood. They recognized that the United States had created ASEAN as one of the enabling exit routes from the Vietnam War. They had conceded their low-end manufacturing market to avoid those, those, those ASEAN countries falling prey to a potential communist appeal to the poverty-stricken people who populated those countries at that time. They enabled those countries to grow fast, the tigers, and they were the source of the USA deficit with Asia. 
China just attracted the Asian exporters and enabled them to complete their assembly and production more cheaply in China and export from China. China learned from ASEAN, worked with ASEAN, and learned from the humbling of ASEAN in 1998 and from the humbling of Japan 20 years earlier, famously remembered as a product of the Plaza Accord when Japan mistakenly, I think in Chinese views, agreed to a major change in its currency rates. China took the deficits of Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, and ASEAN into the growing deficit of China's trade with the USA and Europe. Not a new, not a new deficit, just moved geographically to China as the last point of export. Much of the content came from outside China and still does. So the big export drive from China, which started in 1992-1993 and culminated in trade battles in 2004 to the present, have to be understood in this context. This is very well illustrated by Professor Danny Kwa, who's analyzed the numbers that, in my opinion, prove this point. But this was only a stage in China's development. As early as 2002, China was beginning to experiment with stage two, and the move towards a domestic-driven economy was underway. Tested and trialed, as the Chinese do, through to 2009, summed up in 2010, it was formalized, this move towards a more domestic economy, into its first major phase, the current five-year plan, which sees China moving from low-cost exports up the value chain and beginning to develop a deep domestic market. The engines of growth will be domestic demand instead of exports and consumption, and exports would and will move up the value chain. This will take another 10 years at least to achieve. During this time, China will adjust and develop its currency and capital markets. This is what will determine the rate of the renminbi, not demands from outside. The next five-year plan, 2016 to 2020, will see this consolidated, and that is when China's trade with the West will be fully overtaken by China's trade with Asia, Africa, and South America. China's stall is set for South-South, and their aims are not imperial, but to make China work as a medium-sized middle-income economy to be in consort with those who have similar objectives and needs, with those who have the resources China needs and who are facing similar challenges of development away from poverty. So, part three, the implications for China's foreign trade. The Chinese have become the biggest buyers of raw materials from the developing world and are developing balancing exports of manufactured goods in the other direction. This will be increasingly the main feature of China's trade. This means China's trade with Africa, Central Asia, South America is on the increase. The failure of the Doha Round in Hong Kong five years ago was a great lift to China's agenda for regional and bilateral deals. China's work with ASEAN was a major priority, but a lack of coherence in ASEAN, combining with mixed motives of some countries, has led China to focus more on the Shanghai Cooperation Organization nations. For those of you not familiar with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, it was established when the Bush administration announced it was going to move the focus of its attention into Central Asia and the war in Afghanistan started. The Chinese convened the Central Asian states together with Russia to form the Shanghai uh, Co Coordinating Organization, Cooperation Organization, 
and uh, it has developed into a major security and developing now into a major trading block. And that's all the central stand countries with Russia. And at meetings of the SCO, countries like India um, and uh, South Korean people like that attend as well. It's a very big and major force in the world and not very well known outside uh, those who study Central Asia. But the China began to focus, as I say, a little bit away from ASEAN, more on SCO and the BRIC nations, which I'm sure everybody here is familiar with. But these are the bigger economic nations. The, this is where China's trade priorities are and with Africa and South America and where are the impact and opportunities exist for Western nations wanting to do long-term business with China. I'll come back to this. It's not China the market anymore. It's China the global partner. While there are those who would argue for containing China or even managing China in the more extreme wings, the reality is that trying to undermine China in ASEAN or North Africa will lead to conflicts as undermining to us all as the Euro problem is to the whole world. China will maintain a major business with the West for a variety of reasons. They need the West to be locked in with them, interdependent and closely connected. China knows it has to work with the West for the foreseeable future, but it will support regional and other structures as well as old institutions such as the IMF and the World Bank. China knows that the West will stay powerful and influential for many decades to come, if not, per <coughs> if not permanently. So China will remain involved and committed with the West. Germany has found ways to marry these disconnects and build a very vibrant trade with China. Is it just because they kept and enhanced their manufacturing industries and we went to financial and other services instead? I would say that Germany represents the accepting face of Western power, welcoming new entrants and helping them while taking economic benefit along the way. They apply this not only to China, but also to Russia. We could do the same, but for the moment, I would say controversially, we are, perhaps, we are locked into our special relationship with the United States, from which we've had great benefit, which finds us closer to the position of the United States, which is said clearly by the United States not to tolerate the rise of a China or any nation that may challenge the USA's domination of the world. That leaves us somewhat exposed to the risks of failure of that approach and not to able to access many of the benefits of the alternatives. In 1971, when the USA surprised us by opening political relations with China, and they did surprise us, the Chinese rewarded the United States with big business deals. I know, I did many of them. The British followed a short time later, but lacked the rewards of being first. But there is, in my opinion, plenty in China that we could be profiting from despite the argument of lack of complementariness. We could dissect the Chinese five-year plan and find areas where we could be one of China's key global partners. Areas such as electric cars, wind and other alternative energies, high-speed trains. These are all key priorities for China where we could have very sophisticated joint approaches. We might be the junior partner due to the differing sizes of our markets and resources, but we are innovative people. The competition of being China's long-term partner is underway, 
and countries like Germany are well ahead of the United States and other countries. Other countries show more relevance, but we have national advantages which we can play. We have a great deal of common ground with China, apart from our shared membership of the Security Council. We have extensive presences and experience in many areas of the world China wants and needs to prioritize relations with. We are also a major global financial market with ex extensive experience in international capital. Some of China's needs for increased markets, acquiring brands and oil wells and mines, will have to be achieved through corporate acquisition. London is an excellent place for China to work from. London, with 300 years of stability and financial expertise, could unfold a role for partnership with China, but not if it constantly criticizes China. We may feel, excuse me if I go here, but I will, we may feel human rights are of the greatest or major importance, but people tend to bank with those they feel comfortable with. I'm 100% for getting human rights right in the United Kingdom. I'm realistic, I think, about our ability to influence others. Turning to companies that will succeed in China, it will continue to be those who have what China lacks, be it airplanes or retailing expertise. Where China is weak, there is real opportunity. Where China is strong, there is a need to go the global route. Helping China engage with new markets in Africa and South America and Asia in exchange for better access to the Chinese market. Let me give you an example. There are companies that do major business in China, in industries of, like sugar or other industries like that, but lots of operations, they can't make much profit. They have extensive operations outside China, in places like Africa, South America. If they were to able, China, able to offer China access to those markets in Africa and Asia in exchange for a better leverage on their operations inside China, they would find that their position inside China would improve and their knowledge and relationships with China would be transformed. Companies that are increasingly are higher up the product chain will continue to find China an attractive source of goods. But much of China's low-end exports will move from China to the developing world. Much of China's exports to the USA and Europe will be done increasingly from other countries by the Chinese working from, in, and with those countries, increasingly in Africa and Asia and South America, in my opinion. No major company can afford not to have a major strategic approach and partnership with China. But how to form it? Most have determined they need a major Chinese part to their businesses, but most send off a top person to build a China business. They think a good relationship with China is having a plant in China, operations in China, usually with not very much profit, and their CEO or chairman going once or twice a year to China. That is too narrow an approach. Companies must absorb at the highest levels the realities of China's major and global plans. They need to get China, to understand China. They need to develop strategies for China that recognize China as a global force and not as a simple single country market. Governments and companies need to understand, need to understand that profit is rarely the key motivating factor for Chinese companies or the Chinese government. 
Although Chinese are very determined to get the best deals, China's plans are much broader and wider than mere short-term profit. And finding the way to synchronize these different approaches can only be started when you understand that the difference exists. The recent events with the collapse of the USA financial market and the crisis of the euro show that the world is forever interconnected and interdependent. The problems of the euro need all nations' involvement to solve. But whilst this all shows the global interconnectedness, the reality is that the business world needs to up its game with China and become intimate at the highest and all levels with Chinese business. From this will develop the real business gains that can create prosperity and jobs for us and China. From this, we can create the basis for living as equals in a multipolar world with structures that can manage the future forms and powers of the globe, and they're going to change enormously. It's an exchange of helping China get where it needs to get in exchange for economic benefits and political reassurances for us. This works if it's all truly mutually beneficial. The UK needs to get China and develop a real plan for China with China. How will we know we're getting it? When our leading politicians start to find the time to spend serious time in China, to get discussions beyond two-hour exchanges, when our corporate leaders are increasingly chosen because they have spent years learning the business in Asia, when these two things happen, we will be able to significantly increase our share of China's fast-growing foreign trade and investment. The man who built Prudential's business in China is working in Hong Kong. He should be working in London, but he's working in Hong Kong. When we work out how to get China at a government level and a business level, we would then have the basis for a grand deal with China, maybe a special relationship with China. We don't need to choose between the United States and China. We can work with both. I'm confident that we will get there because over the decades, over the centuries, the British have found their ways through innovation to work out how to be important and punch above our weight, but we've still got some way to go. I hope I've opened enough different aspects of my experiences and thoughts that will serve as the basis for a question and answer session. It did take a bit long, didn't I? Thank you all very much. Um, I think, it, well, I've, I've written seven pages of notes, um, and there are many, many points I know that you'll want an audience to, to ask. Um, I think there are many questions I could ask. I'm going to ask one question. It's my prerogative of chair that we'll open up uh, questions to the floor. There are many questions I would like to ask you, but I'm going to actually ask you a very, very simple one, actually. Um, the points you made about where China is still weak, where China is strong. Where do you think China is most weak and still needs either our help or our products and our ideas? What are the main things we should be thinking of in the next three years? Well, there's a show stand or a So for those of you behind the rostrum, my apologies. Um, the Chinese are weak in a number of areas, particularly high technology areas. Um, I mean, for example, you take the whole area of 
Apple, Google, Microsoft, Windows, um, the Chinese are a long, long way behind uh, uh, companies in, in the West. For them to, to, to make the transference to those levels of technology is going to require phenomenal investment of uh, educated people and um, people who can manage the creation from small companies to major new technologies. Um, some of that is best done by people in the West who are experienced in that kind of activity. Um, in the area of um, developing um, acquisitions overseas, managing companies overseas, uh, the Ch Chinese have very little experience and very little knowledge. There's a, I, I mean, there's a whole bunch of areas um, where there are opportunities with the Chinese. It's, it's how to get into the situation where, the, where you can develop a route for them to get into them and through a trusting relationship be able to be taken seriously as the mechanism for delivering that. Thank you. Um, I, I, I think one of the big things that I find fascinating is if you look at the business of education, which yeah. I'm in, and it is of, of language learning, um, we've got um, the British Council, the Goethe Institute, the Cervantes Institute have all gone under really very big problems in the last 10 years, five years, because they have huge real estate, they can only go to one city, um, they haven't really reached out over the last five years because it's very, very difficult. And I think what's fascinating about China that they took the whole business model on its head and actually set up organizations, the Confucian Institutes, with universities, and then through the universities and with the universities and, and running parallel, working with the Confucian Institutes in schools, in classrooms, really actually getting to people as well. And I think that's why, again, I've learned so much just working in the last three or four years in, in ways of, of making contact, in looking at different things. So I think from an innovative aspect, that China does have things to teach us as well. It's a, it's a two-way street. Uh, well, um, sorry, yeah. No, I mean, I think education is a phenomenally interesting area. I mean, there are 100,000 students um, here in, in the UK. So obviously we've got something in our educational structures. Liz Reed's here in the audience, knows this better than me. I'm a bit embarrassed to talk about it in your presence, Liz. But we've, we've got a lot to do, not only in attracting Chinese students here, we've also got a lot to do in uh, being able to take some of our skills mm. uh, to China. Another area where, where the Chinese are going to make enormous strides in the next uh, few years is um, health. They're going to open up and create a, a, a major health industry in China. 80% of Chinese hospitals are going to be privatized. They're not, they're not bound as we are by, by dogma about approaches to these things. What they're concerned about is how to deliver health to their people. And they will deliver health to their people and it will, the, 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 the cost of it will come from government, from companies, from individuals. The mechanisms will be insurance and uh, contributions from individuals. But if you take the whole concept of um, caring for elderly people, uh, we do have a, an enormous amount of experience in this country about that and it's, it's not a simple question. You, know. you, you take the whole, the whole aspect of um, dementia, Alzheimer's, these things are very complicated um, and they're, they're much, pretty well understood here about how to handle these types of things. A lot of opportunities for British companies to get into that industry. If we approach the Chinese health industry at the, minister, at the, at the government level, at the ministry level, and then at the uh, individual areas and come up with plans to be the 
um, preferred partner of China in the health industries. But you can, the whole welfare state is, is, is opening up, but I think the health is probably the best one. Um, there are other f opportunities in the field of pensions and, uh, and other things like that, but I, I mean, I think health and education are two top um, areas where Britain can still prosper. That's great. Well, we're going we're to open it up to the floor. Um, we're going to start with the right. I'll go to the left. I won't forget the gods as well up there. Um, there is a blind spot, by the way. So any of you over there on the left, really put your hands up high. Otherwise, we won't see you. Just little whimpering voices in the corner. Starting off, the lady in the um, coat, the scarf. Uh, Stephen, you gave the most fantastic... Um resume of the uh, entire history and uh, one thing that um, is, comes out from it is absolutely seamless management by the Chinese taking export-led growth and now moving to consumer growth and you mentioned that um, the next phase, the next five-year plan would involve um, appreciation of the RMB and uh, a liberation of financial um, financial system derivatives, etc., which they've clearly already started. What are the risks, do you think, in terms of the management of that at government level? Um, and w will it be as easy, relatively speaking, to control that kind of development? Uh, first of all, uh, to stay, uh, I, I know maybe a lot about a little, but I don't know a little about a lot. <laughs> There's a lot of things that are, so I, I have to be careful about trying to sound like I know a great deal. Um, the, 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 the switch of the textile industry from being low-cost exporters to, to supply in the Chinese domestic market is a very complicated process. I mean, the needs and demands of the people in China are very different from the needs and demands of Americans and Europeans. So this transference of the industry, the transference of, uh, I mean, the Chinese use 10 million tons of cotton. They, buy, they make about 7 million tons of cotton. They probably ought to make only about 4 million tons of cotton because the rest of the land ought to be used for food, which is higher priority and more of a security issue. I'm talking in numbers nobody else begins to think of. So that, 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 that operation of planning, researching, testing, um, formulating policy and then implementing it has to be an, an enormous operation and it's going on in lots of different areas at the same time. The movement as you're doing this, as you're reorganizing say the cotton with all the food and so on that's got to be put into these um, land areas, you're moving the people out, you're mechanizing into the, into the agricultural areas. Um, the risks and challenges um, are phenomenal of, of whether they get it right. So that, that process of testing is vital. Um, the problems of um, resistance from people. Is, is major, you know. If, if um, I think it may take us ten years to get a runway at Heathrow, in China, if they want a new airport, it's there in nine months. Um, with that, which is vital to a country like China to be able to make quick decisions and implement them uh, speedily, um, you, you kind of run through people in the process, and you have a lot of incidents going on. So you've got the social stability issue that's right there alongside it. If, you, if you're also looking at alongside that the whole area of the developing of the financial markets that you need uh, to create to enable, say, a large-scale agricultural company to come into existence in Xinjiang province and be able to raise its own money, to be able to issue its own bonds, to be able to borrow its own money, 
you know, the banks are only about five years old as, um, as Western style, not Western, they're not Western style banks, as um, more commercially uh, based banks. For them to understand the impact of crops and the weather on those loans is, um, and, and not having to run the whole time to the state planning mechanism to back up those loans. So the, the way in which this financial uh, structure will evolve so that at the end of the day you've got these big corporations operating uh, in an integrated way through through some form of a government structure being planned and mobilized from the party structure be behind it. Um, it's, it's, it's an incredible story to unfold. People see it after it's happened. I think what I'm trying to do today is to give you a sense that all of this um, uh, assessment of what's needed, the testing of how to do it, is all going on now. And when people say to China, you ought to change your currency rate, it would help your inflation rate, Wen Jiabao says, thanks a lot. You know, <laughs> this is much more complicated than that. I've got millions, tens of millions of workers, particularly in southern China, all employed on the basis of low-cost exports. And until they're repositioned into other areas of the economy, I'm not going to start playing around with my currency and risk 10 million Chinese going walkabout from southern China. The consequences are enormous. So, sorry, rather long answer to your question, but it was right on the point. This whole process of opening up is a, a 10 to 15 year process of recentering their economy. And that's why they're very conservative, in my opinion, about things like the appreciation of the currency, the speed with which they'll open up bond markets, and so on. Thank you. Center block, questions. Gentlemen. Well, thank you for your lecture. Uh, could you tell us about the uh, role of corruption and bribery in doing business in China? According to a recent uh, article in Economist, uh, China has the highest rating uh, among top 30 economists in the world in terms of corruption. And uh, what kind of corruption, uh, corruption uh, transactions you could meet there? For example, uh, it could be offer of share of business or uh, illegal obtaining of license, such kind of things. Thank you. Um, you know, nobody knows uh, the, the answer to your question, nobody. Um, people who don't like China, and that's most of the Western media, constantly tell the stories about corruption. Most of the people who do like China in China constantly deny the question. All I can give you is kind of my personal view on the subject. Um, first of all, a lot of companies employed a lot of um, intermediaries, particularly uh, from Hong Kong, to open up their businesses in China. A lot of those intermediaries told their foreign partners, you need to pay people off. For example, clients of mine involved in developing penicillin markets in China were told that if you didn't pay the Chinese doctors in the hospitals a payoff, they wouldn't prescribe their penicillin. I said to my clients, you'll never know who's getting the payoff. It could be the intermediaries, it could be the hospitals. Don't get involved in it. I think any company that gets involved in corrupt dealings in China is, is, is on a hostage to fortune. They, they, it's a no-win situation. So if you're being told that you're going to lose a deal because of corruption, my view is, A, according to Western law, don't touch it. B, according to business sense, don't touch it. Now, your question goes deeper than that. To what extent is the, is the economy corrupted? Well, you know, we went through the Industrial Revolution in 150 years. The Chinese have had 30 years at it. If you took a similar stage in our 
Industrial Revolution as the Chinese are up, we were pretty corrupt. And, uh, and we didn't have a de democratic government either. So you, you, you have to understand that these things are the product of change, development, education, and a number of things. So if you went into the towns, you get, you'll find corruption is, is going to be around the place because people with power don't get paid a lot, and therefore you can pay them off. Is corruption a major problem in China? I personally don't think so. You hear, of course, don't you, that the children of the leaders are very corrupt and taking all the money and um, that, that they're getting uh, all, the, all, the, all the plum opportunities. I don't think that's the case. I think the Communist Party is involving more into um, a, uh, a, um, um, a kind of a ruling elite, more like our British establishment or other ruling elites in a lot of different countries. I don't think that's necessarily negative, negative or dangerous if it provides stability and the opportunity for the development to occur so that the 900 million, the 1 billion, can develop and get out of poverty and to get a good life, then if that's the model they're going to follow, then we need to understand that. But yes, there is corruption, but I'd say to anybody who come across it, walk away from it because it ain't worth getting involved with. But that's the best answer I can give you. I hope it's enough. Excellent answer. Left, left back here. Gentleman there. Yeah. Thank you. Um, you, you paint a picture of China as a, somewhat sort of a benevolent force perhaps even for good in the world. But I'm not so um, sure that you're right. I think whether it be taking raw materials in Africa and getting or offering very little in return, or acquiring Western technology and giving very little in return, I'm not so sure that you're right that it doesn't have some sort of imperial ambitions in the world. Uh, I mean, fair comment, you know, and, uh, and you're right to make the point. Uh, the, 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 the right answer um, to this question arises out of debate. I think what you're asking me, really deep down, is is there two different instincts in China? One which is about making China good and working with the outside world in the best way possible, and the other, a more sinister one. Um, I think if you kind of ask the question, does the West and does China use methods to achieve its objectives which uh, in the cold light of day people think are wrong? Everybody does. And I'm sure the Chinese do. And I'm sure my Chinese friends who deny it to me mean it, but I'm sure they do use various methods to get what they want. I mean, that's the same, I think, with, uh, with, with most countries and most peoples in different ways. I think your question, though, goes to something deeper. Um, that is, will China try and rule the world? Yeah? Um, and that, that, that's, that, that is a good question, because I think unless the West gets China right fast, China will have the option to decide, and that is dangerous. I don't think we should rely on Chinese good principles and goodwill when they are the most powerful country in the world to be doing the right thing. That does not seem to me to be learning the lessons of history. So I think right now, instead of trying to fight the Chinese over currency, we ought to be saying to the Chinese, what do you want? What do we want? Can we build the relationship of trust that enables you to get what you want and for us to get what we want? Can we get more access to China? Can you get easier access to other things? And can we build this step by step and, and learn to work together? Now, I, I'm going way off beam here, but bear with me. Uh, my family has to. Um, I think the, the, 
there, there is a, a good example of this in history. If you, there's, there's, two, there's one very distinct thing about China which is in China's favor. China is the first power coming to world, world power who's coming back. It's the return of China. Every other country it's been the first time. So we've got a pretty good idea of what, China, what China's instincts are like. And they're not bad. China didn't try and rule the, last, the world when for 18 of the last 20 centuries it was the world's largest economy. So you have to make that point first of all. History's on China's side on this argument. But here's another example. Let's take a country where, where, where things weren't so good in our history, and that's uh, Germany, where we had a lot of experience of Germany rising and that causing enormous wars and enormous loss of life across Europe and elsewhere. And then somebody came across this idea of the European Union that would enable China, Germany to grow economically without having its uh, military um, face um, to the world. And here we are today in a situation where if this was 50 years ago with Greece, we would probably be getting ready to fight. That is the history of Europe. So the European Union, for whatever weaknesses people have and whatever criticisms they have, has been a mechanism which has enabled Germany to grow as a nation and become enormously powerful without threatening any of us. And its approach to dealing with the Greek problem is, of course, taking into account Germany's interests, but it can't move without taking into account everybody else's interests as well. So I say this. If we were smart, we would be trying to find the basis for working with China now that enabled China to get much faster to where it wants to get to in exchange for um, uh, mechanisms and structures that made us all feel safe when China is perhaps the most powerful country in the world. I think we should anticipate the future. I think we should pay attention to the negative scenario or else if you just, if you just take what I'm saying as being you don't have to worry about China, I think that's to leave the Chinese to make the decisions about our future and that's not, that's not something I they think they want to do. I think they respect people who can negotiate well and I think we can in the future but I don't think it comes from attacking them on human rights. I think it has to be more fundamental than that. Thank you for that. Questions from the, from the top, from the gods. Any, any great ideas coming from up there? Just enough oxygen. Fine. You had your... Oh, great. Okay. No challenge. <laughs> hey, uh, Christopher George. Um, I've been working overseas for many years and just set up my own company, uh, helping companies to do business overseas. And I've just come from a meeting with a company in Ireland, which helps companies establish themselves there. And um, one of the big questions, I mean, answer, um, resolution as we left the meeting was, um, <clears throat> let's do a survey. Um, let's send a survey out to Chinese companies and ask them what do they want to do in Europe. And uh, that's what I'm doing over the next two weeks. <laughs> So I um, just wanted to ask you, you know, is that a good idea? And, uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, how much are you prepared to pay for the answer? <laughs> I mean, I, I couldn't give you the answer, but I'd still charge you, don't worry. You didn't say in what sector, and I'm not sure whether that was particularly important, what sector you want to know what the Chinese want to do in Europe. 
Give me a bit of target in general. What do the Chinese want to do in Europe? Uh, well, you know, um, to some extent, some of the best decisions are already made by the Chinese. The Chinese are very big in Hungary. The Chinese are very big in Greece, in Germany. Uh, I mean, if you look at a map of the world, it makes more sense to be in the center of Europe than on the side of Europe. When the Koreans and the Japanese came to the UK in the 90s, it was because they could, be, um, they could export into Europe from, from the UK, um, where they would have a good solid base and great uh, economic advantages with a country that is extremely good on working with foreigners. So there was a lot of attractions here. Uh, in many respects, a lot of Central European countries have now um, opened up and are, and are able to offer those alternatives. What do the Chinese want in Europe? Uh, the Chinese want to access, they, they, want to, they want to get up the value chain. So ultimately, they want to buy the retail stores. And they want to be able to produce the goods that sell for the highest value in the retail stores. That's not because some Chinese told me that. It's because just sit there and think about it. If you're China and you've got this ability to make those kind of big calls, that's what they'd want to do. So um, if, the, if the Europeans want to, want to work out, uh, sorry, so the point I'm making is that the Chinese will want to have, continue to have a major trade relationship with Europe. That's the first thing. So that they're going to want to be able to sell more and more higher value goods to Europe. So they will want to set up the logistics arrangements to be able to warehouse, distribute, and bring those goods in. Whether they'll want to own the airports and the and the um, uh, sh and the ports as well. I mean, there are examples in Italy and Greece where the Chinese have bought ports. They bought um, airports in Germany. Whether they will or be allowed to own that's another matter. Whether they'll be allowed to buy the retailing chains that will enable them to put their goods in at higher markets, uh, that's another question governments will have to make, including the European Commission. It's understanding that Chinese long-term plan and working out how the Chinese are going to work with it step to step. Now, uh, you know, if you're asking me about a, a small industry, that kind of answer that I've given isn't really very helpful. But I think if, if it's a sectoral question or it's a geographical question, try and look at what the Chinese policy would be over 10 to 15 years and then see how to position yourself in relation to the steps China will go through. But they will go through step by step where they're going to get to. I think. Okay, thank you. Gentleman here, and then we'll take another question from you as well. You, both hands at the same time. Thank you. Uh, you said in the main body uh, of your talk about business that profit is not the key motivating factor for Chinese companies and the Chinese government. I think I understand what you mean in relation to Chinese government, but if not profit, what is the objective, the key motivating factor for business in China, and what will it will that be profit, or will that change in the future? I mean, what's that um, uh, book you buy? Where's Wally, isn't that? I put that in my speech so that somebody would ask that question. I was waiting for it. Thank you. What is, <laughs> are you studying at the moment, or are you working? What are you studying? You're studying economics. Um, I mean, it is, uh, it, it, I'm glad you asked the question, and it is related to economics and where things go. And it's interesting, aren't you? St. Paul's is occupied, and some people want to throw the protesters out, and some other people are beginning to say, what's the guy who's the head of Lazard's, has been put in charge of a group of people in the city who are beginning to ask the question where the profit should be the... So pardon? Ken Costa. Ken Costa, that's the guy. Uh, asking the question whether profit should be the, the major determining factor of companies or whether they should have a greater social um, objective, perhaps maintaining employment, perhaps 
um, uh, keeping prices down. There are, there are all numbers of ways in which companies could contribute to the social good of a country. It's a bit difficult when you're hired and fired on the basis of profits. That's not your question. The question is, what's the Chinese approach? You, you try and do business with the Chinese, they'll fight you over every single penny along the way. So don't get me wrong, it's not as if they're a soft touch on money. The Chinese objectives is market share, technology, um, acquiring brands. If you ask the, the head of China Telecom, what's he trying to do in Europe? Or you ask the head of Sinopec, what are you, you ask uh, the, the oil companies in China, what are you trying to do? They're trying to buy oil wells around the world. They wanted to do a deal with America to share with America in oil energy production, the Unical deal, the Americans told them to go away. So the Chinese are now out everywhere trying to buy oil uh, resources. They're trying to buy iron ore mines. They're trying to buy copper mines. Um, these uh, operations are to resource China. When they're trying to buy, um, uh, in, in other areas, they're trying to buy distribution, they're trying to buy brand names. At the end of the day, it only holds together because there is a profit that comes from it. Of course, profit flows. Chinese companies are usually pretty profitable. But profit, profit is not the key motive. That's why there's a constant inability of Westerners to understand the Chinese banks. Of course, they have to be sure that the people they're lending money to can service the debt, but they're also being told that there is another set of objectives why they should be providing funds to these companies to enable them to realize long-term goals. Um, I, I hope that explains it adequately. Yeah? Thank you. And then the uh, lady there. Firstly, I very, very thank you, Stephen Perry. I'm looking for you for since four years already. I'm just so happy today I can speak to you. <laughs> yeah, four years ago. Four years ago, what happened? Um, my father-in-law, I just married to my husband, and my <laughs> father-in-law just asked me, asking me because he is um, one of the funder of uh, the main charity fund in China. He tried trying to ask me to speak to you, to try ha have any opportunity to speak to you, to ask, are you interested to do, donate money to the charity fund in China? <laughs> why, 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 why did you rush? Actually, um, <laughs> I mean, um, since I do lots of research about 48 group clubs, mm -hmm. and then as anybody, uh, everybody knows that, 48 Group Club is an icebreaker, it's the first mover to helping China to doing a lot of tra trading business. So I would like to say this sort of relationship is a kind of partnership to helping each other. And then, I mean, definitely um, there is a lot of problem about the charity fund in China. So I'm trust 48 Group Club they donate lots of money in China through the Hong Kong way, but not directly to China. So I'm just wondering, um, uh, as many groups uh, in European Union, they do they donate money to China, but also through the Hong Kong way. So um, what do you think, and any improvement or what change will, will change the structure of this sort of donation? Thank you very much. And I will tell my father-in-law tonight I can speak to you now. <laughs> um, thank you.
Jim will fix it, you know, poor Jim. Um, you know, um, uh, there's a strong, you know, I was talking about what, what is the, the values and the ethics of Asia. I talked about Buddhism, Confucianism, and so on. The ethical values of Europe probably come from Christianity. And in Christianity, there's a great stressing on charity, well, the Judeo-Christian religions, uh, that charity is an essential part of being a good person, that you help others. And so we have uh, quite a sophisticated charity um, structure in the West. I'm a little bit concerned as to whether all the money we give to the charities goes to the objectives or whether some of it goes to the salaries of the people working in them. And different charities give different amounts of what you give to them to the end purposes for which you think you give them. Uh, so our charities are not all 100% right and we haven't got it 100% good. And probably they do more charitable work in America than we do here. Um, one of the great needs we have here is to help the British Chinese community um, in, in the needs of the elderly uh, British Chinese and some of the needs of the young. Um, and somebody here is Eddie Chan who's done a lot of work in this field. So the, 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 the first responsibility I think of people supporting China is to help the British Chinese because they're our fellow citizens in this country. With regard to charity in China, I think there's some confusion about this question. I think that the Chinese have much greater social responsibility for many more years than anybody in the West has. Um, the Chinese uh, companies, the Chinese towns, cities, institutions have um, parallel relations with poor areas and they give a lot of support and help to those peoples. That is, by our definition, charity, but it goes completely unnoticed in the West. There has been the establishment of charities, and I know of two that I got associated with in China um, that have both been um, taken over by corruption scandals, the question that was asked before. And I think, it's, um, uh, I, I think it's difficult when there's a lack of transparency to get involved in that form of charity with China. However, I would say that there was the Chinese Welfare Society, which I think was Sun Qingling, which gave a lot of help uh, to Chinese people. Um, China has yet to learn how to structure the charity industry in a way that's transparent and people can be certain. Most charitable donations have been given for political benefits. That's the reality. And, uh, and that's, um, if it goes, ends up in the right place, it's not a bad thing. But if you're on the other end and knowing how to milk that, it doesn't end up in the right place. So I think China's got a lot to learn about charity, um, but I'm quite sure they will learn it and work out how to do it. And uh, will I give money to charity um, in China? I have given some. Um, I may have to disappoint your father-in-law, but um, we'll certainly try and help. I'd like him to help us help the British Chinese community first. Thanks. Thank you very much. Right, we're coming to nothing from the centre block, so we're going to go to the left. This gentleman there first, grey sweater, and then the um, burgundy sweater. Uh, thank you, Mr. Perry. Um, I have a question. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I think you said 80% of the Chinese hospitals will be privatized in the future. I think you said that. I hope I said it fast enough so nobody would actually remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yes, um, I'm just wondering if that figure is too high because from what I know, um, the Chinese people, the income gap is getting larger and larger. Yeah. Uh, if you're considering hospitals getting privatized, people need to afford their own payment for visiting um, hospitals. 
And uh, in Western countries, that's majorly done by buying um, health insurance. But I'm not sure that's the way for China because lots of Chinese families don't have the concern to buy health insurance, and they don't have really have they don't really have the money to buy that insurance. So um, I'm just wondering where you uh, how you get that figure or what's your view on that? What are you, stu are you studying? I'm studying master in management, and I've been here for ten years now. So I have a strong understanding. Studying master in management. Uh, in the health industry? Uh, no. I just wanted General to make sure you didn't know more than me. It's now I can. <laughs> Uh, let's separate some things. Uh, when the Minister of Health was here, Chinese Minister of Health was here, I asked him this question. How much does the Chinese state spend on health? How much does the American state spend on health? How much does the British state spend on health? And how much will you spend on health in five to ten years' time? So his answer is America spends 18%, the United Kingdom spends 10% of GDP, China spends 5%, and that will go up to 7%. So how much that's spent on health is being determined at the central level. The mechanisms for that funding route is the one I said before, I think, which is um, government, companies, and individuals will, will provide the funding, and probably in, in about representative amounts, but more government funding will go to the poor than it does to others. So uh, we've got government funding going to the poor who can't afford it. You've got company and individuals going to those who have more money. Your question to me was whether was about the hospitals, as if there was some um, in, uh, parallel between hospitals being privatised and the cost of hospital treatment. Um, I, I, listen, I, I, I th I'm probably um, uh, way out of way out of um, uh, what's the word? I, I, I think it would be a good thing if a lot of hospitals in the United Kingdom were privatised because I think the quality of the service would improve enormously if they had to respond to the, a competitive world. Now, some people would say the health shouldn't be a competitive force. But here you've got in China a very good example. You've got to some extent the dead hand of the state on every hospital. And what are the, what are the Chinese government saying? We're going to privatize these hospitals and they're going to have to compete for the quality of their service. Now, you can't, oh, you can't raise competition to too high a level, but you're going to make them... Um, so the big hospitals, so 80% of the total number of hospitals, so maybe the biggest hospitals accounting for 50 or 60% of the total hospital care will stay under the control of the state. But a lot of the smaller hospitals will be privatised, and they will have to compete for their business in, in a way that they'll have to show that they really care about their patients. And I think a lot of people in China don't feel that the hospitals are caring enough about their patients. So this is about stimulating a change in the health environment. It's not about the cost of health, and it shouldn't be about the ability to access that health treatment. Uh, the proof will be in the pudding. But the Chinese government clearly believes, after studying what's going on, that the Western model of providing, of controlling the hospitals from the state is not necessarily the best way of providing health care. So it's not privatizing hospitals to provide private health. That will happen. They'll all go looking for the biggest sources of income to start with, and then they'll be forced by regulation back into providing a proper balanced um, a range of admissions of, of people. But I'm a bit out of my depth here. I, I haven't spent a lot of time looking at this. I was given the bald figure 
uh, by friends in China, and I think they, know, they knew what they were talking about. But I think it's got to do with the methods of delivery, not with who will have access. But I could be wrong. Thank you. And then, gentlemen, the... Uh... Thank you very much. Um, I'm currently studying my A-levels, and um, one of the topics is business ethics. In the 1980s, the Japanese came over and um, were improving motivation by quality circles um, and keeping a good relationship between managers and employees by, um, by motivation. And in a way, I think that reduced um, certain amounts of um, certain amounts. can't think a second. Um, but it, it reduced controversy and um, conflict. Yeah. And in a sense, I think if the Chinese are doing quality circles and will, will strengthen the relationship between the managers' employees, do you think um, business ethics and um, do you think business ethics, in a sense, will improve in China? Um, what you're asking is, is, is what's the role of ethics in Chinese business and ha have we got anything to learn from them on that around, around that sort of subject um, some people in China say that the Chinese run their businesses like we run our democracy and that we run our businesses like they run their government so this, that means that they believe their businesses are quite um, consensus driven and um, well, that's, I, can, I, can, I can stop at that point because your, your point's about the businesses. Um, I, I think Chinese, Chinese businesses are quite old-fashioned in their, in their hierarchical structures and in their, um, uh, their decision-making methods. But at the same time, you, you, you've got this incredibly democratic approach to decision-making. The decisions that I talked about, about how to progress in China Boy, everybody can express a view, and everybody's allowed to express a view until the decision is made. Once the decision is made, then you're fighting policy, and then you're at major risk. So the process of debate in advance of a policy decision is very intensive. The Chinese are acutely aware that they've got a lot to learn about how to build proper management structures and how to, how to build a proper mechanism for the filtration upwards and downwards of good values and good, um, and, and good ways of behaving from a management point of view. Um, and I think that uh, you know, the Chinese will draw from Confucius, from Buddhism, from all sorts, from Marxism, from socialism, from all sorts of sources to try and find the right model of structure. I find privately a lot of Chinese very resentful about their managers. On the other hand, I find some people saying well, my managers are very caring and very good. I, I think it's a product of time. I think that as they go forward, uh, they will find that the more enlightened they are, the more successful they will be. But that doesn't necessarily have to be. So your question is right on the point. Uh, let's watch and see what is the role of ethics in a Chinese business. I can't give you a clear answer now. Maybe it's because I don't know enough. But my sense is it's still in an early stage of evolution. Thank you. I think we had one question there. Maybe the last question. 
Hi, um, you talked about like um, for in order for the West to like work with China, they need to fully understand the um, the needs of China and um, you know what what is needed, what the plan. Because you said that it's going to go go down its course, that it's planned for the next five years. But um, also, you talked about how it's going to be committed to the West, and also um, knowing that Chinese um, the policy focuses on independence. How far? How do you think? Do you think that um, the the goal of achieving independence will go astray in the future on a political sense? I don't quite follow your question. Okay, so the the goal of independence will go astray because in um because it's you said that it's going to be committed to the West the that China is going to be committed to the West in the future. Oh, I see. And so, do you think because like you have to? They have to cooperate with Western needs that, yeah. in a political sense, they'll go astray from independence. Uh, it's a very complex. Uh, it's a complex question, and um, there are people in China who spend all their time addressing this issue: Is this policy making us too dependent? Is this policy um, moving us too far away from the, committing the relationships? Um, and you, you can see. Let's let's take an example. China committed itself very strongly to a policy of working with ASEAN, ASEAN plus one, ASEAN plus two, ASEAN plus three. You're familiar with that. And the Chinese, about three years ago, when, it, when that all started, the free trade area, they really concentrated their people on getting involved in trade with ASEAN. Then we ended up with the problems in the South China Sea with Vietnam, with the Philippines, with an Indian uh, ship going into Vietnam and so on. You get some tensions going. So here you've got some people in China saying we were too committed to um, ASEAN and we began to abandon our independence and look what happened. Uh, now we've got ourselves in a situation where ASEAN is not quite the ally it should be. Um, well, to some extent, you, 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 you never know where to go until you try, until you go too far, and then you get um, some pushback, and then you have to react to that. But I think that the problems with ASEAN are short to medium term, unless people really want to stoke it up and uh, try and create a containment conflict with China. It's always possible. I hope it doesn't happen. I think it would be very foolish um, if people tried to provoke um, conflict with China through these sorts of problems. I don't, I'm quite sure the Chinese don't want those kind of conflicts. But if they're pushed too hard on sovereignty, they, they will react. Uh, there's no doubt about that. It's the last thing they want, but they will react. So with the, with the West, you know, the Chinese are always looking to see how to be involved, how to create closer relations without jeopardizing their independence. And I would put my money on China not being prepared, that if the China had to make a decision that they will improve their lot by making some concessions on independence or that they will allow themselves to develop more slowly, they'll choose developing more slowly. Which is why I come back to the question before. If we want to develop some kind of grand bargain with China, we've got to overcome that belief that we are all as bad as those who did what they did in that 150-year period. We're not. Uh, the vast majority of Europeans and British people are good people with good values and uh, the Chinese and British people have good relations but how you make those sorts of forces come to the, f come to the fore um, you, you've got to find the right stepping stones, the right experiments to show that China can concede more of its domestic market to the foreigner 
and that it didn't do any harm, and that in return they got something else somewhere else which helped China, that this wasn't part of a plot. So you have to find the ways to enable this determined sense of independence not to get in the way of uh, peaceful development of the world. I say that, but most Chinese would be horrified that I would think that their sense of independence might threaten peace. Uh, but it, it can do, because you can, you can leave yourself in a situation where others feel frustrated, angry, or don't trust you. And that is the, the risk China has every day with the United States. If it frustrates the United States too much, the United States has the power to hurt. And so you've got to deal with all these situations in a very sensitive way. But, I mean, there is no clear path here, unless you have something like the European Union, where everybody's bound in together. Okay, thank you. And we're going to actually draw attention. It is hang on the money, bang at 8 o'clock. Um, I'd, I'd just like to, to thank Seam. You really have delivered everything you said you would. Um, you... You were looking at the problems, the challenges, the opportunities for doing business in China. I think what you've shown very, very clearly, and I've taken an awful lot from it, I know that people in the audience have, that when you're dealing with China, it's not just a market. It goes far, far more than that. Um, and you mentioned sensitivity. You alluded to respect as well. And I think as well the way that when you're dealing with China, that there is an insecurity in the way that China deals and looks at itself. It isn't an arrogance structure. There are, it's far more complex. And I think that what you've shown, and why actually you're so successful in what you do, is that you have shown and continue to show this mixture of sensitivity and respect for what is something that is an amazing country and I think is an amazing challenge for all of us. So round of applause, please. Thank you very much.